Good evening. My name is Carl. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Carl. I just need to clarify something. I'm from Covina, not West Covina. It's, yeah. it's, there's a big difference. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to take the time to tell you what the difference is, but there is. Anyway, uh, uh, thanks for having me. Um, Katie, love listening to you. That was wonderful. And uh, love the readings. Great version of chapter five. Love that. Uh, it was. I remember one time I was really mad at my girlfriend and I read chapter five and I got called to read chapter five and I read it to her like that. <laughs> made, a, made a searching and fearless moral inventory. Oh God, my sobriety date is January 21st, 1987. And uh, the most important thing I can tell you about myself is that I'm an alcoholic. There is nothing more important than that statement. On any given day, I'm an alcoholic. That's the most important. You know, when we're new, they say, hey, you alcoholic. And, you know, we raise our hands and say we are. But if you're really like cornered and said, what does it really mean? A lot of us might not know, right? And it's, I sometimes think it's silly that we, I mean, would we ever go into court and they say, guilty or innocent? Wouldn't you say, what's the charge, right? Uh, normally you want to know what, we, you know, and, and we're kind of saying that when we say, are you alcoholic? And we kind of need to know what that is if you're new or fairly new. And so I love to talk about why I'm an alcoholic. Katie uh, touched on it really, really well, but I love to obsess on it. I really do. Uh, the reason I believe I'm an alcoholic is uh, because I've got a really strange relationship with alcohol. No other reason. I've got a really bizarre relationship with alcohol. And this strange relationship that I have with alcohol takes on a couple of forms. Uh, the first part of this strange relationship that I have with alcohol happens when I drink it. A uh, really strange thing happens when I drink booze, and our book calls it an allergic reaction. And the book says the symptom of this allergic reaction, the, the symptom of this allergic reaction that I get is what they refer to, and Katie said it, the phenomenon of craving. That's the symptom of my allergic reaction. And the best way that I could describe this thing that the book calls the phenomenon of craving in my life is that it seems whenever I drink booze, the more booze I drink, the thirstier I get is really weird. It does not happen with anything else that I drink. An example of that, I've got a cup of water. Right? I went over there and got a nice little uh, uh, jug of water there. Got a nice cup of water here. And over the next uh, 45 minutes to six hours that I'm talking with you, I will, uh, I know. Right, well, I'm talking, I'll probably finish this cup of water. But I can absolutely guarantee you that once I finish this cup of water, I am not going to go buy a case of water and, and lock myself in a motel room, right? There is no chance that I'll be texting my friend Tim. Tim, dude, I need another case, man. I need another case. I'll turn the pink slip in my car over. Come on, right? I won't be peeking out the blinds looking for them, you know, just because you know, it's not going to happen. But if that was the only thing that made me alcoholic, this bizarre physical reaction, this bizarre, unquenchable thirst that happens once I take a drink, if that was the only component of my relationship to alcohol, well, just say no would have wiped out alcoholism. Some of you are too young to remember, uh, but we used to have this first lady that came out with a massive ad campaign trying to solve drug addiction. It could, could apply to alcoholism. It was the just say no campaign. If that would have worked, I would have, and I imagine you would have gone, ha, <laughs> no, and just, <laughs> and just gone on and lived a happy, successful life, just saying no. But I've got this other really strange part of my relationship with alcohol. And what's really strange about this component of my relationship with alcohol is this happens 
when I'm not drinking. My book calls it the mental obsession. They also call it the strange mental blank spot. She brought that up. They also refer to it as the thought process that precedes the first drink. They devote a whole chapter to it. They got a couple of wonderful stories, Jim and Fred. I love Jim and Fred. Got to read about it. I love, I've got a t-shirt that says, we heard no more from Fred for a while. I, uh, you know, and if you know the book, it's just a great t-shirt. The best way that I can describe this thing that they call the mental obsession or the thought process that precedes the first drink, the best way I can describe it in my life is that it seems like no matter how much pain and suffering my last drunk caused, I seem to have a mind that will always paint a picture that makes it okay for me to take another drink. My mind always seemed to be able to rationalize and justify my walk back to the next drink at all costs. So therefore, because of these two components of my relationship to alcohol, number one, I cannot drink successfully because of this craving that takes over. But at the very same time, I cannot not drink successfully because of this thing called the mental obsession. So I'm damned if I do, and I'm damned if I don't. It's the ultimate catch 22 we call alcoholism. Because I swear to you, if I could do either one of those two things, either drink successfully or on my own not drink successfully, I'd be doing that. Well, I just lied. Uh, I think in the, the, was it Genevieve that was texting me? Right? She, uh, I don't think she's yeah. here. She has a final or something. Uh, she was sending me a bunch of text messages that have a good time, but don't lie. And right, so now I'm six minutes into this and I've lied. <laughs> it's just like that. I told you I would drink successfully if I could. And the truth is, I have no interest at all in drinking successfully. I used to think that I wanted to drink, drink successfully, but the reason I thought that is I was ill-informed as to what drinking successfully actually was. <laughs> the reason that I was ill-informed as to what successful drinking was is because I had never done it. <laughs> However, now at 35 years sober, I have read about it, and I've witnessed it. I've witnessed it with other people. So I'm here to let you know what I found out about successful drinking and let's see if it's attractive to you. <laughs> Apparently successful drinking entails drinking approximately two drinks and stopping. <laughs> I know nervous laughter in the AA meeting, two drinks <laughs> and stop, right? It literally, I start to twitch just thinking about two drinks and stop. I would rather all of you stand up and scream obscenities at me for the next hour rather than for me to be caught in a situation where I have two drinks in me and I can't get any more. That is a nut that's a nightmare scenario for me. Right? I'm gonna harp on that physical feature just a little bit more because it's the remember I told you I'm obsessed with describing alcoholism. I just love to do it. Um, I'm going to harp on that physical feature uh, a little bit more because it's the one thing, bar none, we all have in common. Because the fact is, we have a lot of things that are not in common. I know if you're new and you're saying, they said, look for the similarities, you're going, I don't know, man, uh, you guys seem pretty different. Uh, and we are. Alcoholics Anonymous is very, very different. And, and in Southern California, you can find that out real quick. I grabbed uh, Denver from Covina and he goes, you know, Covina is a pretty rough crowd compared to down here in Laguna Niguel. And I go, yeah, we're in Laguna Niguel, for God's sake. You guys, <laughs> you guys don't look alcoholic at all. <laughs> in Covina, we got some fine upstanding citizens, but we got some rough characters up there too, right? So, you know, it can look a little different and you just drive over, you know, 20 miles somewhere else and it looks, 
And that's because Alcoholics Anonymous is a huge, wide cross-section of society. Every single race, creed, color, religion, every single type of social and economic background, every single culture, every type of family background, we're all here. In fact, Alcoholics Anonymous is such a wide, diverse crowd that right here in this meeting, we probably have a bank president. We probably have a bank teller, and I guarantee you, we got a couple of bank robbers in here, right? <laughs> all right here in the very same meeting. On top of that, so our stories are different based upon what kind of family we come from, how old we are, right? What, you know, what's our culture? Where do we grow up? What part of the world we we're from, right? So our stories would be different based upon that. How big was our family? What education level, right? So our stories are very different. On top of that, we drink differently than each other. We really do. If you listen closely, when people tell their stories in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, I think you'll agree we drink differently than each other. To illustrate that, let's imagine this. Let's imagine we crack open the back door and we wheel in this giant cart right up here to the front of the room. And on that cart, we got all the kinds of booze we all love, right? If you're a top shelf expensive drinker, we got it. Remy Martin, Cabassier, that one, or that one woman with the white Zinfandel, we got it right there, right? Or if you're a bottom shelf drinker, we got that too. Mad Dog 2020. There's all, I love I, a couple of guys in the back. Oh, we start to salivate when I start talking about Mad Dog, right? And everything in between. And let's say we all took a good four or five stiff drinks, real drinks, no umbrellas in there, no mixer, a good four or five stiff drinks. We'd all be acting very, very differently, right? Over in this corner, we'd have the good time crowd. Ah, ha, ha, drink, drink, fun, 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 talk, 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 woohoo, party, party, talk, 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 drink, 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 talk, 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 add a little methamphetamine, talk a little faster, talk, 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 over in that corner, we'd have the criers, you know, they get a little drunk, you're like, oh, man, oh, man. Over in that corner, we'd have the fighters, right? Get a little drunk, got to fight, fight, fight. Over in this corner, a bunch of us would be naked. <laughs> like our first speaker when running through, running, running through the sprinkler, right? With grandma chasing her down. I personally would be visiting the other three corners trying to find a couple of friends to come over here with me. <laughs> so our stories are very different based upon which corner we're drinking in, right? If we're in the good time corner, we get a lot of DUIs. Got to go to the next bar. You know, the next bar is always better than, right? Next bar, got to go, got to go, right? After hours, we're going over to Fred's house. Let's go, Woo! right? We're out on the road. We get a lot of DUIs. Over in the crying corner, they don't get arrested. They don't even leave the damn house. They're in, the, they're in the closet. They call you at, that's the worst thing they do. They call you at 3 a.m. <laughs> right? So our stories are very different based upon which corner we're in. But no matter which corner we're in, there's one thing we would all be doing. We'd all be back at that cart for another drink. That was really important for me to understand when they said, look for the similarities. See, because if I listen, if I'm saying, what kind of family did you come from? How old are you? Uh, what, what culture, you know, what, uh, you know, if I'm looking at that, I don't know, do I identify? Maybe, maybe not. You know, at some point we mature and we identify with the whole human race on a human level, absolutely, but real easy to separate yourself. So that's very easy to, but if I, if, if I listen to what happens to you when you drink, and then almost more importantly, what happens to you when on your own, you try not to drink? If I listen to that, I don't care how old you are, how young you are, where you grew up, what background you have, I'm you, you're me. 
I can identify with anybody in Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, I'm just going to skip through. I just, I, I took a drink at 11. I know I, I waited a long time. I was late. It was late uh, compared to a lot of people in AA. A lot of people like getting sober at 12, for God's sake. I took my first drink at 11. My whole teenage years, it's the 70s. I got long hair. I'm stoned. I'm from a really good family. Really, really good family. Very accomplished people. And, uh, right, at 14, my vocabulary is, whoa. <laughs> wow hey man i call my mother man hey man right and they don't understand what's happening to me so so they did what people who don't understand alcoholism would do my parents would try to change the people place and things in my life restrict me from the, that group of people take me out of the public school put me in the private school all of the stuff that people that don't understand alcoholism would do but you see my problems are not based upon people place and things so changing people, place, and things in my life are not going to do it. So if you change the people, place, and things in somebody's life like mine, all that happens is that I'm loaded with different people <laughs> in different places, ruining different things. That's all that happens. Right? So uh, by the time I was, uh, uh, then my parents uh, sent me off to college. I spent three years at Washington State University. We, I grew up in Seattle. Uh, I spent three years at Washington State University, and I got like 10 credits in three years. At any given time, my grade point average matched my blood alcohol content, about a 0.25. I did nothing at that school. By the time I was 22, this little story I'm about to tell you will let you know exactly where I stood with my family. Uh, my father was Swedish. Uh, my mother was Icelandic. That's why I look like a polar bear. And, and I don't know whether this custom I'm about to tell you about is a Scandinavian custom or whether it's a Lutheran custom, I don't know. But at Christmas time, my parents wouldn't just send out Christmas cards to their friends and relatives, my parents would send out this big, long Christmas letter that said everything the family had been doing that year. And when I was about 22, I got a hold of one of these letters that had been sent out the previous Christmas. And as I read it, it let me know exactly where I stood with my family. The first paragraph talked about what my parents had been doing that year. Another impressive year, I'm sure. The next paragraph talked about what the Morris children had been doing that year. And that paragraph went something like this. Our oldest daughter, Christina, just graduated from Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, with a master's degree in human resources. She's now working for a large pharmaceutical company in the Midwest. She traveled to Europe this summer. She saw this, she saw that, her hobbies are this, this, and this. She's a very happy young woman. We are very proud of her. Our oldest son, Eric, just graduated from Western Washington State University with a degree in marketing. He's now working for a large advertising firm here in downtown Seattle. He loves the golf, he loves to travel. He's engaged to be married to this wonderful woman named Mary Lou, who works for a very small company here in Seattle named Microsoft. <coughs> it was small at one time. And they love to golf together. They love to travel together. He's a very happy young man. We are very proud of him. Our youngest son, Carl, just turned 22. <laughs> I was like, Long story short, uh, literally, it would take till breakfast to describe everything that happened over a 15 month period, but I just like to condense it down to one sentence for time sake. A really bad night happened, so I joined the United States Navy. Uh, it's a bad night. Uh, what I'm about to tell you should concern you if you care anything about the security of the United States. But on my way into the Navy, I passed a potential test. Uh, this test is called an ASVAP test, and this test that I took qualified me to become a nuclear engineer. 
That should concern you that the United States Navy would have any type of system in place that even maybe possibly or even remotely would allow somebody like me near anything nuclear. <laughs> however, however, they made me take another test when I showed up at that base for boot camp and I could not pass that particular test. That test is called a urinalysis test. <laughs> Never, I never knew how to study for those things. <laughs> Should have kicked me out. Uh, they kept me in the Navy, took away the two-year nuclear school, sent me directly out to the fleet. And I do well when the ship's out at sea. I could do well. I started to understand the camaraderie, being the military, understood the honor of serving one's country. I started to learn a trade, but that ship would pull into a port and I would take a drink. And I literally would go off on these three and four day drunks and I had no idea how to stop that drunk once it started. And I gotta tell you, the Navy is really big, really big on showing up back at the pier before the ship leaves. They are, they're big on that. They are big on that. Like AA is big on the not drinking thing. <laughs> but AA is very forgiving about that not drinking thing. You know? Hey, you, you messed up, we love you, come on, try again, right? Navy, no, they're not so, okay. And it's a very strange feeling, I got to tell you, after one of these three or four day drunks and I find myself at 6 a.m. on a large pier in a foreign country and I'm looking up and down that pier going, <clears throat> uh, there was a destroyer here the other day. <laughs> I had another big catastrophe at the front guard shack of the Navy, of uh, the base. Uh, catastrophe as in my car slid sideways right through the guard shack. <laughs> it was one of those mornings where there's broken glass, twisted metal, sirens going off, everybody's running in circles and they're all pointing at me like it's my fault. I hated those mornings, right? I just hated those mornings. Um, then later that morning, I found myself handcuffed to a hospital bed. I hated those mornings too. That meant I had a lot of legal trouble going on and I'm, I, and I'm in a hospital bed, right? And uh, that particular morning, the Navy put me on antibodies. Um, anybody? I know there's always groans in AA, oh, 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 oh. right? And uh, if you don't know what antibuse is, it's a harmless little look, white pill. It does nothing to you until you take a drink, right? And then, uh, well, I'll tell you what happens. Uh, <laughs> I, I lasted about 10 days uh, not drinking, and then I went AWOL, AWOL from my ship, locked myself in a little motel room in downtown San Diego, uh, Plaza Hotel, it's on 4th and Broadway. Uh, cost $13 a night in 1986. I checked a couple of years ago, just before COVID, they'd done a little remodeling. It's now $19 a night. It's a fine establishment. <laughs> and I, I remember sitting on, the, sitting on the edge of the bed and I had a bottle of vodka and a shot glass. And I remembered that the Navy doctors had given me a stern warning about drinking on top of the antibuse when they prescribed it for me. They said, son, you need to understand that if you drink on top of the antibuse, you'll get one of two reactions. One reaction is you will get violently ill. The other reaction is, you might die. I remember looking at the bottle, and I thought, <clears throat> well, wonder which reaction I'm going to get. <laughs> and I took one shot, and nothing happened. Authority had lied to me again, as far as I was concerned. I waited about two minutes just to make sure, <laughs> and I took another shot. All of a sudden, I felt tingly in the face, so I looked in this cracked little mirror that was in this hotel room, and I was bright red blotchy and purple in places. Hmm. <laughs> Took another shot. All of a sudden I could feel my heart going boom, boom, boom. Looked at my shirt, I was drenched in sweat and all of a sudden I was like <gasps> hyperventilating. <gasps> We're doing all right so far. 
You guys are really sick if you think this is funny. <laughs> I took another shot and up it came. My second sponsor was a man named Eddie Cochran. His sobriety date was December 2nd, 1951. I actually used to drive him to where this meeting used to be back in the 90s because when I met him in 1989, when I got out of the Navy, he was uh, uh, 43 years sober and he didn't drive at night anymore and his wife couldn't drive on freeways. So I would drive him to go speak. And I have lots of memories of, of back in the 90s. Anyway, so he called the next thing that happened to me, projectile regurgitation. This is a new level of puking I'm unfamiliar with, right? Because we all know normal puking. You're out there in the middle of a good drunk and you get that little sour taste in the back of your throat. You just kind of go, and you just write back in, right? It's not the end of the night just because you're puking. I mean, you know, just it's a brief, you know, interlude here. <laughs> but here on the Anabuse, it was, I just, sort of like this, this Linda Blair spray across the room. Thank God the Plaza Hotel, thank God this hotel room was the type of hotel room where the toilet is in the same room with the bed. It's a design feature, I believe. Maybe to make convicts feel more at home upon the I'm not really sure. But I found the magic of drinking on top of Anabuse, and that is if you hang in there. And that's a very important aspect of drinking on Anabuse. If you're gonna drink on Anabuse, you cannot half measure it. In, in fact, if you're gonna drink on top of Anabuse, you might need to reach down deep inside yourself for a level of commitment you might not even know you have. <laughs> found that if I would keep drinking and keep puking and keep drinking and keep puking for about an hour to an hour and a half, enough of the antibodies would kick out of my system and I'd quit throwing up and I would just be left with red face, hyperventilating and sweating. And I'm all right with that. So <laughs> I drank on top of antibodies the last seven months of my drinking. The only words to describe this are desperation drinking. Uh, at one point left for dead in a motel parking lot in a pool of blood, came to on an operating table. They had to do reconstructive surgery on my face. Before my mother died, she was the only one that noticed that I spoke a little bit differently after that incident because my jaw just works a little bit differently. And uh, my last night of uh, drinking, I'm being let out of the San Diego jail. I'm being transferred from the civilian authorities over to the military authorities. The handcuffs are extra tight. My neck muscles are not working well. It's one of those mornings where other people are leading you around and you're going from here to there to this office in front of these people and those people. Finally, they bring me back to my ship and... Uh, the officer deck put his arm up and says, wrong answer. Orders have already been processed on this loser. The orders are 90 days in the brig, bad conduct discharge. Or then he had this sort of disgusted tone of voice of, or apparently they're offering him something called treatment. And I remember going, when they said treatment, I went, hmm? Now it wasn't because I thought treatment was a good idea. I didn't even really know what that was. I'd heard of it. You can't be out there uh, doing what we're doing and not hear of it but I never did follow-up questions whenever I saw it. So what really is that, right? Or hear, you hear the words alcoholics anonymous, you go, maybe I should investigate, right? No, I had no idea what, what the world of recovery treatment or alcoholics anonymous was. I had no idea, no idea. But I did know that that treatment thing sounded like it might be able to help me with my upcoming legal troubles, right? Because whenever you're in handcuffs, you know that court cases and probation and all of that is soon to follow. It's always right afterwards. I now know that it wouldn't have mattered what I was thinking or feeling that morning because I was in handcuffs. And I don't know about your experience in handcuffs, but my experience was always the same. Whoever had me in handcuffs, never once did they ever turn to me and say, so what's your opinion on what happens next, right? <laughs> when you're in handcuffs, you go where they say. And they took me up to a military treatment center and when the doors were locked behind me, that's when they took the handcuffs off me. 
as best way to describe who I am without Alcoholics Anonymous, that the country I'm supposed to be serving and the society in which I'm supposed to be living in and contributing to is only willing to take the handcuffs off me when the doors are locked behind me. So I did 45 days in this military treatment center. And I got to tell you, as far as uh, treatment centers go, uh, the United States Navy back in the 1980s and 90s had one of the finest treatment centers in the world. It's not because they had some new method of detox. It really, they really didn't. I mean, they had us out there running three miles a day with the Marines screaming at us, move it, move it. And then they put us into therapy in the afternoon and go, how do you feel? <laughs> Here's why I think it was such a great place. Every, Four to five nights a week, white vans would pull up to those barracks. About five or six of us would be put into each one of those vans, and each one of those vans would take off out into San Diego County, and we would show up at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous just like this. I would be sitting along the back row of many meetings just like this. Many of them they would choose would be large, uh, at least this size or not larger. That would hold five or six, seven uh, military men and women. We'd be sitting in the back watching Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know there was a difference between watching Alcoholics Anonymous and actually being in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I'm so very grateful that Alcoholics Anonymous welcomed outside agencies to refer potential alcoholics to come watch Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I love that idea because that's what saved my life. You know, uh, sitting in the backs of the back of those uh, meetings, listening to you guys uh, tell your stories. The thing about Alcoholics Anonymous that was different than what I'd encountered before, ever since I'd been a teenager, whenever things got really, really in trouble, right? A friend of mine overdosed, right? You gotta lay low and then all of a sudden the parents are getting involved and now you get some, you're being sent to psychiatrists and psychologists, you know, somebody commits suicide or big accident or a drug deal goes badly or you know, I'm uh, kicked out of college and all of a sudden you're put in front of highly educated, well-meaning people, psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors. They always wanted to talk to me about me. Why do you do these things? What is it that makes you do this? Let's talk about what, what is it about you that you, what on earth are you doing? You know, they always wanted me to talk to me about me. I get to Alcoholics Anonymous and what was different uh, is that you guys didn't want to talk to me about me. You guys only wanted to talk about yourselves. And you, you just go on and on and on about yourself. Katie did it, I'm doing it right now, right? <laughs> I have not gone to the back of the room and said, hey, what's the matter with you, right? We, we, don't, we don't do that at all. We just get up here and talk about ourselves. But there was something in that exchange that brought a lot of credibility. The other thing that brought credibility at Alcoholics Anonymous is, let's say we're here on a Sunday night and I'm sitting in the back of that room back in the 80s. I could tell that you would be here doing this whether I was here or not. In all of those interactions with psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, counselors, chaplains that I'd be put in front of, I knew that if I got up and walked out of the room, this whole thing's over, right? right? They wouldn't be there talking to the wall, right? But you guys would be. <laughs> I've, I've shown up at meetings around the world where there's this one guy sitting there waiting, open, somebody shows up, right? If not, he would just be there reading the big book, hopefully waiting for somebody to show up. And because I was in the military and traveling all over the world, I found lots of media, you wouldn't believe. I'd walk in and they go, oh my God, there's somebody else here, right? And I'd go, really, thank you for being here, right? I've been out at sea for a long time and I need a goddamn meeting, right? So anyway, uh, I got out of that treatment center after 45 days and uh, I remember vividly, 
they brought my car out of impound. I had, uh, had a 68 Volkswagen hole in the floorboard, had to push start the thing. Uh, long story as to how my life had, well, you know, you know, your car dies of alcoholism right along with you. And, and this was a replacement car to the last car that I had driven, uh, wrecked. And the tow truck driver said, what are you going to do now, sport? And I go, I don't know. He goes, how much money you got? I got 200 bucks in my pocket. Well, in my tow yard, I got a Volkswagen. You got to push start it. You got to jam a, steer, a screwdriver into the steering column and wiggle it while you're push starting it. But hey, it might run for a couple of years. Right? That's what I got sobering. And they brought that car out of the impound lot. I remember driving off that at that base. I, it was a Friday. And for some, I don't know what, why, what Navy clerk got my orders that I didn't need to be back to my ship till Monday. And I'm fresh out of treatment. That seems stupid. But literally, it saved my life. And looking back, I remember pulling off that base. And if I turn right, I know exactly what bar I like to hang out with. Go right back downtown, right where I was. Or I could turn left to those meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous that they were taking us to when we were in treatment. And I turned left. And I think most of us know that literally our lives hang in the balance on, do we turn right or do we turn left? And I turned left and I went to the six o'clock gong show meeting in Pacific Beach. I remembered where that particular meeting hall was because it was on a little bit of an incline. Cass and Law Street in Pacific Beach is a little bit of an incline. Uh, when you got to push start your car, uh, <laughs> you, those are the little things you think about. And I showed at the six o'clock gong show meeting and I sat in the back. I didn't know anybody. And big energetic meeting, probably back then about twice this size in a room about this size. So it's jam is packed. It was threatened really like one of those meetings that just vibrates with the energy. And uh, I'm sitting in the back and I don't know anybody. And the uh, this one guy sees me back there and he barrels right at me and he rather aggressively says, hey, never seen you before. What are you doing? And I didn't think quick enough to lie to him because I swear to you, if I would have thought for one more second, I would have told him a story, but I accidentally told him the truth. And I said, I don't know. I just got out of a Navy treatment center. I have no idea what I'm doing. This guy's eyes went, bing, big smile went across his face. He looked like he had just hit the jackpot in Las Vegas. I had no idea that I had just established myself as the holy grail of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> a newcomer who accidentally admits he has no idea what he's doing. <laughs> so this guy at the break, he's like fighting his friend. No, this guy's fine. I got him. Fine, 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 fine. There was something else going on in that guy's life that particular Friday night that made him especially glad to meet me. This guy's girlfriend had left him for, another, for one of his friends in his home group. I know, I know. So he's wondering what he's going to do with his weekend, weekend homicide, suicide get loaded or grab this newcomer. He's like all over me all weekend. We went to like 18 meetings of alcoholics. This guy was insane over this woman, flat out insane. In between this barrage of meetings he dragged me to, in between each meeting, he'd throw the passenger side of his car, he'd start driving and he'd start yelling. He wouldn't even look at the road. He had like one of these AA radar cars that just made it to the next meeting, I guess. <laughs> and he'd be yelling at me, you gotta go to me, you gotta read the book, you gotta get a sponsor, damn her. You gotta go to me, you gotta read the book, damn her. I didn't know it, but I was getting a very early introduction to your typical AA relationship breakup is what I was getting. But I'm so very glad that that guy that night in his pain was a guy in Alcoholics Anonymous who had done the work of Alcoholics Anonymous, who had taken the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and therefore he understood that the solution to his pain was out of self, out of self, out of self. I'm so glad he wasn't at home 
whining into his sponsor's answer machine. You guys, you guys know what an answer machine is? <laughs> if you don't Google it, it's right next to phone booth, I think. Uh, right? Sponsor, where are you? Fix me. Give me a golden answer. I'm sure that guy talked to his sponsor. I'm sure. But it seems to me this guy's sponsor sponsored him something like this. Yes, yes, son. I will always try to be here for you whenever I can. I will introduce you to Alcoholics Anonymous. I will take you through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'll teach you what the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous are. I'll tell you what it means. I'll try to show you by example what it means to be committed to Alcoholics Anonymous. But son, son, if you learn to work with others, you will have a lifetime of solutions at your fingertips. And that seems to be what that guy's sponsor had taught him. After that weekend, uh, I, I went, I got back to my ship and the one other sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous on my ship was waiting for me. His name was Bob W. He was 23 years old. He had 16 months of sobriety. He had a sponsor and his sponsor would tell him he had to work with somebody and here I come. I'm like gold being delivered to him on a silver platter, right? I was gonna have to jump overboard to get away from this guy. This guy was just all over me. And I was 25 years old with 48 days of sobriety when I got back to my ship. And my sponsor was 23 years old with 16 months of sobriety. Neither one of us knew what the hell we were doing. Didn't matter. We both had willingness. And he had a sponsor who was like sponsoring us both. And we, we'd get off that ship and we didn't have cell phones, right? We'd have to call back to the old guy in San Diego. You know, I knew my sponsor would get on first. What do I do with him now? Right? And the direction was that whenever the ship poured into a port, we would hunt out meetings. Right, no matter where we were. And uh, when we were out at sea, uh, we would uh, read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous back and forth. So every night at 6.30 p.m., we'd be in this little battery shop in engine room number two, him and I in a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. When I look back at those times and I, and I see those two young men out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean on the USS Cushing, it's like an Alcoholics Anonymous in its purest form. It's like the blind leading the blind. But two young men who wanted to stay sober, had the willingness, had the desire, and had a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he taught me what little he knew. And what's supposed to happen to us, what's supposed to happen to us when we go through the, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous as best we can, happened to us. We both fundamentally had a rearrangement of our attitudes and ideas towards life. We literally started to care more about how we can serve rather than to get. It literally happened over the, the next two years. My first two years of sobriety, I was still in the Navy. And by the time we left that little meeting on the, on the, in the, on the ship, in that little battery shop, had 13 men in that meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. We called it the underway meeting of the USS Cushing DD-985. And uh, it's just simply because we decided we're gonna go up to the chain of command and say, hey, whenever people get in, get in trouble on shore, uh, why don't you send them down here? It was just like us talking to the courts. Right, same idea as an AA meeting talking to the courts saying, hey, if you wanna send people with court cards to Alcoholics Anonymous, we're perfectly glad to do that. We just did our chain of command, send guys down there. And uh, two years sober, I got an honorable discharge out of the Navy. That is the results of the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and apparently merciful God and a Navy clerk that lost half my file. That's how that happened. <laughs> and one of the amends I was unable to make while I was still was in the Navy was that my parents had paid for a bachelor's degree. They had literally sent checks for years to the state university and I didn't have what they paid for. And uh, my sponsor didn't know what to do about that. But you know, the grand sponsor, it's never good when the grand sponsor gets involved in these conversations. He said, you have to either pay your parents back every single nickel that they wasted on that, or you have to go get what they paid for in the first place. 
So uh, I still push start in that same car, that little Volkswagen, uh, two years sober, still push. I could not afford to have any make other financial amends. I could not afford anything else. And I got out of the Navy, put everything I owned in there, puttered on up the LA freeways and uh, moved to this little town called Covina, right? Not West Covina, Covina, <laughs> 1989, February of 89. Two years sober and uh, had no idea what my life would become but I knew I had to go get this uh, bachelor's degree to make him into my parents. And uh, that it now has absolutely proven to me that it was only for amends because I went and got uh, that uh, bachelor's degree in telecommunications management and computer science. And all I do with that, a cell phone. <laughs> I know what Zoom is. You know, but because I dove into the Center of Alcoholics Anonymous, I just went where the, the flow of everything happened, right? And I, I, I really meant to go get that bachelor's degree and go use family contacts back in Seattle and go work for Microsoft. I was on level three interviewing with, with Microsoft in 1993. That, all, that just means they were trying to figure out where to place me. And my life just took a completely different turn. And uh, I, have, I don't regret it, except when I do the math on the... Uh, entry level positions in 1993 in Microsoft and the stock options they give you. And I've done the math on what I do for compared to what I do today. I turned down $28 million when you look at that. Hmm. <laughs> but I got to tell you, man, I love, I love, I found a life that I could not even, I, a life of meaning and purpose. I never knew that I could have a life of meaning and purpose. And that's really all I've ever looked for. I didn't know that that's really all I wanted. So uh, I believe I am out of time. I got, I've got like two minutes, I think. Um, got married at 17 years sober. Uh, I know that all of your relationships have worked out perfectly. <laughs> we were divorced after five years, but in that five years, we had two beautiful kids. And, uh, you know, she's a really good mom. And we had an important, important job because we both love those kids. Uh, Denver saw my son today. He knows my ex-wife. My ex-wife hangs out where I work all the time. She's trying to be of service, right? Because we're friends. We're friends and we operate like we're in a plan B family. We don't live together. We're divorced. But, uh, and you know, God can work in plan B too. I didn't understand that. But we had a really important job that we had to look at the next 20 years after getting divorced because we had two little kids. We could either be fighting and be at each other's throats or we could figure out how we could be friends and be good co-parents, right? So we sold, we had a big house at the country club up in the hills and we sold that and bought two townhouses seven minutes apart from each other. And the kids go back and forth at will and we have been good co-parents. They're now 15 and 18. Um, God, I, I love those kids. One more minute. Having kids, I don't think you have to have kids to, know, to, to learn this, but it's like I met who I would die for. I've never known this level of love for another human being. Right? I've never known that. Uh, I know the Navy made me ra raise my right hand and say that I would die for you, but I was really hoping it was not gonna come to that. Right? <laughs> but with my kids, right? If, let's say, you know, I, Tim, I love you. But if we're out at Starbucks later in Denver, I care about you a lot, I love you too. But if we're out at Starbucks later, some guy comes in wielding a gun, Says, one of you's got to go. I said, have you met my friend, Tim? <laughs> but if it was my kids, 
you know, I, if it meant they could live, I, I, I'd jump right in front of it. The reason I bring this up and I'll end with this, I would never trade my kids for the first drink, never in a million years. However, I know what it means to be alcoholic. Although I would never trade them for the first drink, I would trade them for the second drink like that. Being a good dad is at the forefront of my mind every day. Remember I said that being alcoholic, calling myself alcoholic is the most important thing I do any day. Being, I, I want to be a good dad at all times, but the only way I can do that is from the center of alcoholics knowledge. So uh, once again, I appreciate, uh, I think Tim, were you the one that set me up with this? More than likely you were. Indirectly. He does everything indirectly. <laughs> when, when you see shit going on around Laguna, Tim, Tim's got his hand in it all the time. Anyway, thanks for having me, guys. Good night.